This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, and then 11 through 16. Hear this word. Therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, I encourage you to live as people worthy of the call you received from God. Conduct yourselves with all humility, gentleness, and patience. Accept each other with love and make an effort to preserve the unity of the spirit with the peace that ties you together. You are one body and one spirit, just as God also called you in one hope. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. God has given his grace to each one of us measured out by the gift that is given by Christ. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. His purpose was to equip God's people for the work of serving and building up the body of Christ until we all reach the unity of faith and knowledge of God's Son. God's goal is for us to become mature adults, to be fully grown, measured by the standard of the fullness of Christ. As a result, we aren't supposed to be infants any longer who can be tossed and blown around by every wind that comes from teaching with deceitful scheming and the tricks people play to deliberately mislead others. Instead, by speaking the truth with love, let's grow in every way into Christ who is the head. The whole body grows from him as it is joined and held together by all the supporting ligaments. The body makes itself grow in that it builds itself up with love as each one does its part. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us, thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Pastor Maggie. Good morning, my friends. My name is Scott Gilliland, and I'm the senior pastor here at Arapahoe United Methodist Church, and I want to welcome you to worship this morning, or if you're watching later in the week, we welcome you as well. If you're just tuning in, uh, we are continuing in a sermon series this morning called We Belong to Each Other. And if this is your first Sunday with us, or if you're not yet connected to the larger life of our church and you'd like to be here, you'd like to just learn more about what we do here at Arapahoe, I encourage you to go to our website, arapahoumc.org new, and fill out a form there. It'll take you 10 seconds or less. And what that will do is sign you up for our weekly newsletter. You'll get one email a week. We're not going to you know, uh, send you a million emails a week, so don't worry about that, uh, but it'll let you know some of what's happening in the life of our church, and you'll also receive an email personally from me and from some of our staff so we can help engage you in how whatever ways you wish in the life of church here at Arapaho. As I said, we're continuing in a series called We Belong to Each Other. It's based on a, a series of yard signs that we uh, had produced at the beginning of this COVID time, a a statement, a phrase, a quote from Mother Teresa that has become something of a rallying cry for us during this time. And we thought it'd be good during this July and early August season uh, to spend some time looking deeper at the meaning and significance of that statement. Because when, when we say we belong to each other, there's a lot of depth there that deserves to be discovered and, and discussed. And so uh, last week we talked about what it means to belong. This week we're going to talk about the each other part of that statement. What does it mean when we say we belong to each other? 
That, that casts a wide net, right? There's no qualifiers there. We, we belong to each other in this Christian community. There's a lot of different people that belong here. Uh, and then when we look at our broader world, certainly uh, differences abound. And so uh, a question that I really wrestled with this week that I found myself considering over and over again in preparation for this message was this, and you'll see it on the screens. How are we meant to live faithfully in a diverse and frequently divisive world? How are we meant to live faithfully in a diverse and frequently divisive world? Now, that's a big question for us to uncover and for us to wrestle with, and so I needed some help this week, and I found that help in Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Uh, We heard from the fourth chapter uh, from Pastor Maggie just a moment ago, and these words for me, help me understand what it looks like to live as a faithful member of a Christian community and just as an individual Christian in a larger world that is diverse and frequently divisive. And and I love what Paul says here in the beginning. He he uses a word that is used frequently in, in our Christian speak these days, especially today. It's that word unity. Did you hear that word as Pastor Maggie was reading? The word unity. Paul's calling us to a unity in the Christian faith. Now, even though we use that word quite a bit, I'm not sure we always know what it means. Because sometimes we hear that word used, and and what we mean is we want everyone to look, act, and think, and behave the same. And that's just not a reality, nor do I think that's a God vision for our world either. The first thing I hear Paul saying in his letter to the Ephesians, loud and clear, is that unity is not uniformity. Unity is not uniformity. The first three chapters to the, in the letter to the Ephesians is actually a love letter of sorts from Paul. It's a, it's a love letter about the radical inclusivity of the gospel, how Jesus doesn't just call one particular group of people into God's family. Jesus calls all peoples into God's family. Specifically, Paul's referencing ethnicities, but we know that the diversity we experience in our own community and in our larger world goes beyond just the color of our skin. To summarize, Paul is essentially making the case that, that Christ is who grants us our unity, not one particular person or one particular subculture in our world, right? Paul is not uplifting some sort of cultural supremacy. He had been down the road of what an exclusive faith and faith community looked like. He knew what it was like to persecute others for the sake of their faith or lack thereof. He knew what it was like to see himself as supreme to other people, and he had to do that dismantling work. He'd allowed Jesus to work within him as he became a follower of Christ. That's not what Paul is calling us to. He's calling us to a unity born out of who Jesus is, not who any of us are. Because it's a relationship with God through Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that grants us this grounded center that serves as what I might call a common connector. That's that litany of ones that you hear Paul saying. One faith, one baptism, one spirit. But beginning in chapter 4, Paul takes a turn in the letter to the Ephesians, that that passage we just read starts this sort of shift where he stops talking about from sort of a a cloud's level about our faith and theology, and he starts talking more about the grounded, you know, boots on the ground, rubber meets the road, the way that our faith changes the way that we live. He's explaining the importance of having our lives look radically different as a result of who Jesus is and the unity that we find in Christ. And here's the point that Paul is trying to make, at least what I heard this week. I don't know what you heard. 
But I hear Paul saying that, that Christ calls us unto himself, knowing full well the diversity that exists, and not seeing that diversity as a roadblock, but rather embracing it and seeing it as an asset. Paul talks about all the different gifts and graces that we are, that we are granted by Christ, that we're not called to become less like ourselves. I would say we're called to become more of who we're meant to be. You know, God didn't make us diverse by mistake. That was part of God's vision for who we are, for who you are. You're not meant to become less like you. You're meant to become more like the perfected vision God has for you. And we find that gift and that freedom through our unity in Christ. And so he says, some of us may feel called to serve different roles in this life. We're gifted and unique in different ways. And that means that as we pursue God with our full hearts, minds, souls, and strength, we may in fact be led in different directions. Did you hear that? We may, in fact, be led in different directions, and not only is that simply a part of this Christian movement, it's good and by design. Jesus sees diversity as a gift to be celebrated, not an obstacle to be overcome. Jesus sees diversity as a gift to be celebrated, not an obstacle to be overcome. Even though we are all rooted in a common faith, one love, one faith, one baptism, that relationship with God can lead us in radically different expressions of faith, and that is a good thing from the perspective of Paul. The next thing I want to talk about is, as I hear Paul talking about the importance of identity in this passage, you know, he's writing to a faith community in the city of Ephesus, and maybe the city of Ephesus doesn't mean anything to you today. But if you said something like Chicago or New York or Rio de Janeiro or Beijing, like a city that people know, that's the kind of city that Ephesus was in Paul's day. It was a major, major hub, not only of commerce and trade like most big cities were in those days, but it was also a religious center. It was the, the, the centering place for so many of the Roman and Greek faith traditions. And so there was this really interesting mix of diversity because of the commerce and the economy in Ephesus, but then also a thoroughly entrenched Roman Empire, right? You didn't have to go far to realize who was in charge because this was the centering point for so much of the Roman faith traditions. And so Paul knows that the Christians living in Ephesus were almost daily going to be confronted by some sort of new truth, right, that they would feel culturally pressured to accept. Now, I want you to imagine, if you can, go with me if you can, imagine living in a world where truth is relative. Or imagine living in a world where there's not so much, uh, there, there's sort of this cultural faith that's not so much about actual faithfulness, but more just the appearance of faith. Imagine, if you will, living in a world where diversity is accepted and uplifted only so far as it benefits the profitable bottom line, but the second it challenges the social norms, it's rejected. Could you imagine living in a place like that? Is Paul writing to Ephesus or writing to us? Paul says, as a result, we aren't supposed to be infants any longer who can be tossed and blown around by every wind that comes from teaching with deceitful scheming and the tricks people play to deliberately mislead others. Hmm. Paul's making the case for critically thinking Christians who are willing to challenge and confront the ideas presented to them and to live according to the faith that they know in their bones. You know these things in your bones and not changing 
not changing with the winds of public opinion or polls. So John Wesley was an Anglican priest who lived during the 1700s, and he inadvertently started this movement that we call Methodism. You may have never heard of him before, but he was a pretty accomplished preacher, and one of his most famous sermons was called Catholic spirit. And he wasn't talking about the Catholic church. He was talking about Catholic spirit. He was addressing how we might be able to live with this Catholic spirit. By that, he means a spirit of unity and harmony within ourselves and with others. And it's in the third act of his sermon. Yeah, his sermon had three acts. It was really long. Be grateful that preachers don't go as long as they used to. He's really drilling down in this third act as to what it means to live in a world that is divided as we know it is today. England may not have been as diverse as our community is today, but it was certainly as divided in those days. And he said this, and forgive the antiquated language, for from hence we may learn, first, that a Catholic spirit is not speculative latitudinarianism. That one's for Kenton. Have fun with that. It is not an indifference to all opinions. Now, that's, the, that's what speculative latitudinarianism meant for him in that day. That was a, a branch of philosophy that basically said, everything's the same, who cares? He said, a Catholic spirit is not an indifference to all opinions. This is the spawn of hell, not the offspring of heaven. This unsettledness of thought, this being driven to and fro and tossed about with every wind of doctrine is a great curse not a blessing, an irreconcilable enemy, not a friend, to true Catholicism. What Wesley is saying is that if you know the core of what you believe, that's what he's getting at here, if you know the core of what you believe, and then he goes on to say, not just that, if if you know how to worship God, he talks about worship God, and what he's talking about there is if you know how to connect with God on a deep personal level, And then he goes on to say, and if you know who your church is, and you belong well to a church community, and and we could expand that to mean if if you know who your people are, right? if you know who the people are that you want to gather close around you and build community with, if you have these three things, if you know what you believe at your core, if you know how to connect with God on a deep, personal, meaningful level, and if you know who your people are and gather them close, then when you do that properly, it should give us the peace and strength to actually go outside our homes and ourselves and better engage with our world, yes, our friends and our enemies included, with a spirit of, as he says, Catholic love, that is to say, a love universal. What John Wesley's trying to say is this, if you don't know who you are, knowing how to live is that much harder. Identity is critical if we're going to exist in a bigger, broader, more diverse, and especially divided world. If you don't know who you are, knowing how to live is that much harder. There's this quiet confidence that can come from us being firmly rooted in a faith and faithful community that allows us to more successfully navigate the world around us, especially when that world is in opposition. I think the same could be said of a church. Right? A church we could talk about in the same way. When a church has a mature understanding of its own identity, it becomes easier to live out the mission that we claim to hold. No church is ever going to reach every person in its community. Just as Paul says, some of you are called to be apostles, some of you are called to be evangelists, some of you are called to be preachers. Not all of us are called to be every single one of those things. Not every church is meant to reach every single person. Having a clear identity allows you to then know what you're there to do. When we have a clear identity, 
We're a greater gift to the world. If you don't know who, you're, who you are or why God has put you on this earth, then you don't have as much to offer to the world around you. We can't be about that healing work that we want to be about because we need that sense of self. We need that clear identity. What do we believe at our core? What are those non-negotiables for us? How do we connect with God in a deep and meaningful way? And who's our people that we want to draw in close? Who do we especially feel that God has called us to be with? You can answer those kinds of questions. John Wesley says you're, you're ready to be about that kind of Catholic love, that Catholic spirit. Now, of course, even in the healthiest of organizations or in the healthiest of relationships, conflict arises, right? Paul knows this, and we know this today, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm going to make the case that conflict is actually sometimes a really good thing. You know, one of my great joys in ministry is weddings and marriages. I, I love premarital counseling. I love weddings. I love walking people through the, the ups and downs of married life. And I've even walked into those difficult spaces when a marriage ends. I, I really I, I appreciate it all. I'm honored to be in those spaces. And one thing I know is that the best marriages that I know of are also marriages that have a good amount of conflict. And it's not that they avoid conflict, it's that they know how to walk through conflict well together. And, and here's what I want to say is that um, it, it's, it's something that can actually build us up when we navigate it well. Conflict is something that can build us up when we navigate it well. And, and, and in our larger world, we're going to have conflict, of course, because we're not always going to see eye to eye. It's not the fully realized kingdom of God. So conflict isn't just a reality, it's a necessary one. The question for us is not how do I avoid conflict, but rather how can we have constructive conflict? How can we have constructive conflict? If we know who we are, we know what we're about within our community, within our larger world. Avoiding conflict is going to be an impossible task, but having constructive conflict is what we're aiming for. Paul says something short and yet significant in this passage when he says, speak the truth with love. Did you hear that? That rang out to me this week. Have you ever been in conflict with someone whom you love and whom you know loves you in return? Think about a dear friend, someone you love and you know loves you in return. That conflict with them is just different. It's a different kind of conflict because you know at the root you are for each other and you are for resolution. That's the kind of conflict that Paul is calling us toward in the Christian community, to be able to speak the truth with love to each other, to know that at the end of the day, we are for one another here at Arapahoe. We are for the greater good. We are for each and every individual person, and so that conflict is just different because there is an underswell of love, a foundation of love beneath it all. But it can go in even further than that. If we are truly working, as Paul says, to grow in every way into Christ, Paul always sets a real low bar, right? Let's grow in every way into Christ. Then that love extends beyond our own community. We can't just sit around and, and love each other all day long and pat ourselves on the back. No, there, there's a broader work that has to be undertaken. It's a love that is poured out into the world around us, whether or not it loves us back. That last part is important. It was the love of Christ for a world that rejected him that compelled him to the cross. And it was that same love that proved resurrection in the face of death. 
It can be easy in a world of conflict and division today where righteous anger, do those words resonate with you? It can be easy in a world where righteous anger can boil over as we see how much work is yet to be done on an almost daily basis. It can be easy to approach our world with that position of anger, righteous as it may be. And anger can be a great motivator. Don't mistake me when I say anger is not always a bad thing. God's anger in, his, in God's heart uh, creates a tremendous justice in the world around us. But anger is not at the core of God's heart in God's work in this world. We're called to something greater as we grow into Christ together. There's something more than anger that we're called to. Someone who understood this better than most was civil rights legend and U.S. Congressman John Lewis. He understood anger and conflict and the power of constructive conflict as one of the original freedom writers and a champion of human rights in this nation and in our world as a member of Congress. And as I was processing his death yesterday, I was reading back over a quote of his that I've always found helpful in my life, and I want to share it with you now. It comes from his book, Across That Bridge, and he says this, you are a light. You are the light. Never let anyone, any person, or any force dampen, dim, or diminish your light. Study the path of others to make your way easier and more abundant. Lean toward the whispers of your own heart. Discover the universal truth and follow its dictates. Release the need to hate, to harbor division, and the enticement of revenge. Release all bitterness. Hold only to love, only peace in your heart, knowing that the battle of good to overcome evil is already won. Choose confrontation wisely, he says, but when it is your time, don't be afraid to stand up, speak up, and speak out against injustice. And if you follow your truth down the road to peace and the affirmation of love, if you shine like a beacon for all to see, then the poetry of all the great dreamers and philosophers is yours to manifest in a nation, a world community, and a beloved community that is finally at peace with itself. Hold only love in your heart. Hold only love in your heart. Remember that as much as Christ may have been at odds with our world, he was in love with our world as well. Can we hold that kind of love, the kind of love that John Lewis held in our hearts as well? And so how are we called to live faithfully in a diverse and frequently divided world? This week, Paul spoke to me we find unity in a Christ who celebrates diversity. We find identity in a relationship with our living God and our loving community. And we choose constructive conflict as we hold love in our hearts. Amen.